Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here. How have you been enjoying the Roman study so far? Well, it's funny because I asked for a service and everyone was like, yeah, great. And then I suspect, though, that some of you are kind of like, I don't know what I think yet, Pastor, because it's kicking my butt so far, right? I mean, Romans has been intense. It has been convicting. So you're not sure how to respond. You're kind of like, yeah, I like it, except I feel really inept. I feel unable and all of that. Of course, along the way, though, we keep seeing these glimpses of Christ and and justification by faith, and we're getting there. So um, it has been, for sure, intense, but a, a very valuable, very rich study so far. I hope that you are enjoying that. If you're newer and you've not been coming very long or you don't know what's going on with our Roman study, let me catch you up. We looked at chapter one first. That makes sense, of course. But in chapter one, Paul, he addresses all the Gentiles, you know, the people out in the, in the world who do not have the scriptures. They do not have the religious privilege of growing up in a, in a home where they would learn about God. And so he talks to all of them. And he, and he basically says that they will be held accountable for their sin. And that's true that they don't have this, but they have what's called general revelation. The creation and the glory of God is, is seen everywhere. Creation screams the goodness and the glory of God from the newborn baby to the marvelous Milky Way. And so we come into chapter 2, and, and Paul turns a corner a little bit, and he starts to focus on the Jewish individuals that were living in Rome. And he starts to turn up the heat a little bit on all those that were religious, those that did know about God, and he calls them out on their judgmental spirit. He says, stop playing the judge. You're looking out there, and you're, 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 you've already convicted everyone else when inside of you there is this sin. So Paul tells them to lay down the gavel and instead focus on the fact that they will stand before God one day. That every one of us, whatever our background, will stand before a holy God, before the perfect judge. So he says, stop being judgmental. You need to judge yourself because one day God is going to judge you. And when we talk about Israel and all the privileges that they did have, they had the privilege of the law. They had the word of God, you know, the Old Testament. And they were proud of that. This is special revelation. This is God speaking, and it stands head and shoulders above general revelation. General revelation is not enough to save you. It's enough to only condemn you. General revelation shows us that there is a God. He's bigger than us. He created us. We'll probably have to answer to him one day. But you can't solve your sin problem by staring at a sunset. And you can't figure out how to be right with God by watching the hummingbird hover. Best you can determine is that there is a God, and I'm probably going to answer to him. So the Jewish people, they had God's word. They knew how to be right with God. They knew that there was one coming someday who would make things right. So they had all this, this privilege, this religious privilege, and with great privilege comes great responsibility. Last week we left off in verse 16, so if you have your scriptures open to Romans 2, if not, you can go ahead and turn there. I want to just read verse 16, which is where we ended last week, and then we'll come into our passage in just a little bit. So verse 16 of Romans chapter 2, and remember, here's where we ended. Verse 16 says, on that day, 
Paul, of course, is writing to the church in Rome here. He says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And we're all going to stand before the judge one day. Every one of us. And God shows no partiality. He accepts no one's face, we heard. And he knows everything we've ever done, everything we've ever thought, and we're going to have to give account one day to this judge. So we better figure out what God is looking for. And if that be true, that we're going to stand before God one day, we better make sure we understand what is God looking for? What does he expect from me? So let's look at verses 17 through 20. Let's read on in our text. So we're going to take it by chunks here. So let's just read Romans 2, verse 17 through 20, and then we'll pause and we'll stop there. God's word says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's kind of a weird spot to stop because Paul interrupts his own thought in verse 21. So he himself makes it a little disjointed. But first thing I want you to notice this morning is that God is not impressed with our spiritual trophies. God is not impressed with our spiritual trophies. Israel is very proud of their heritage. Israel is very proud of the fact that they are God's chosen people, elected from all the other nations in the entire world. And God tells them in the Old Testament, it's not because you were so many in number, it's not because you were the most powerful nation, it's because I love you. That's what God said to Israel. I chose you because I love you. And they were proud of that. And in some ways they should be. They were also proud that they had God's law. And the rest of the world did not. Because they possessed the law, the scriptures say right here, they they knew God's will. They could approve of what was excellent. They were instructed in the law. They memorized the law. They knew the law. Steve shared with us last week that the average Jewish boy or girl would memorize or would attempt to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in their entirety. That's amazing right? And I can imagine some of the awesome dinner conversations around the table when the kids were working their way through Leviticus, you know? But they knew all of this. They knew all of this scripture. They had memorized it. And meditating on the law of God throughout your childhood, knowing his word, having this special revelation, that's nothing to take lightly. Every Jewish person should have been thankful, grateful that they had been privileged in this way. The law was a treasure, but it was never meant to be a trophy. And that's the way that these people are treating the law, and it's the attitude that Paul is addressing here. He's addressing this mentality of, yeah, we have God's law, we are his chosen people, look at us, we've won. When you display a trophy or a ribbon, it it says something about you. It says an accomplishment that you have made or something you're proud of. I was digging through a box of old uh, trophies and ribbons, and I brought two with me this morning. Okay, one for comedic value and one to teach a lesson, all right? My wife said to me, Mark, why do you even still have those? I had no good answer for her. I have no idea. 
why do I have these things from like second grade and stuff? But I do, in a box somewhere, okay? Maybe I need to get rid of them after this sermon this morning. We'll see, okay? But my first one here is first place ribbon from field day, okay? Second grade. First place, wait for it, sack race. <laughs> Amazing. All right, that's what I, I forgot to mention this on my resume. We can talk about it. Then I have this one, and this is from uh, Faith Baptist Church Junior Camp, okay? Camp Arrowhead. This is the first place for memorizing scripture, all right? Now, I remember summer camp. I remember spending almost all of my free time memorizing scripture. Now, while the kids were swimming and pranking each other, there's little Marky with his Bible open. Now, before you think of me as so spiritual and are so impressed, why would I do that? Because I love sports. I, love, I mean, why would I do that? Well, it wasn't for this fabric, which is after 30 years starting to show its sign of age, okay? And some, some of it was that I did love the Bible. I was a Bible nerd, and I loved to study the Bible, and I loved to, to learn about the Bible. And so some of it was that, for sure. But there was also this sense of which I loved for people to know that I was a Bible nerd. I loved for people to see me get the ribbon saying, yeah, you're first place. You memorize the most scripture. And if I'm honest... That's probably part of my motivation, because what else would drive me to not play soccer or something like that, right? If I could have a conversation back in time with my nine-year-old self, okay, back there, 1987, and I could talk to myself, I would probably say this, memorizing scripture is incredibly valuable, one of the best ways you could possibly use your time. But, Mark, it's okay to go play tetherball with your friends and build relationships <laughs> and minister to others and if you do get that ribbon, when you get that ribbon, don't boast about it. Give God the glory. The fact of the matter is that we are often the ones who are most impressed with our spiritual trophies. We are the ones who are most proud of what we've done for God or what God has done in our life. And privilege can lead to pride. Let's look at the text and let's see how this privilege-fed pride, it clouded the Jewish understanding. It really caused them to see things askew. They had this false superiority. You could jot that down. False superiority. Verse 17a, it says, you call yourself a Jew. So this is a label that the Jewish person, they, they wove this, wove? No. Waved? Waved this banner very boldly, right? I'm a Jew. We've won. And there's a sense of, of supremacy about that, Paul is saying. You, you, are, you call yourself a Jew. And the pride of being a Jew and the pride of God working in their, in their people had grown into something that it never should have. Notice how they think of themselves and, by implication, how they thought of the Gentiles. Verse 19 and verse 20. Just look at the way that they saw themselves and the way they saw the Gentiles. Okay, so verse 19, they thought of themselves as guides. And the Gentiles were blind. They were a light. The Gentiles were in darkness. Verse 20, they were the instructors, the Gentiles were the foolish pupils. They were the teachers, the Gentiles were the children. In other words, they had a corner on the truth. And there's a sense in which they're right about this, right? There's a sense in which there's some truth here. But privilege should never lead to pride, it should lead to humble love. They had a false confidence too, false superiority, a false confidence. I want you to see in verse 17, what are they relying on? They rely on the law. Later in verse 23, we'll see that they boast in the law. They rely on the law, 
they boast in the law. And this text reveals that many Israelites, they had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the law was, what the law was intended to do, the very purpose of the law. The law was not a good luck charm. But a lot of Jews thought of it as a rabbit's foot. You know, uh, things are going to go okay for me. God is smiling upon me because, hey, we're the Jews. We have the law. We're God's people. We're in the covenant community. It was like an immunity idol on the show Survivor, if you've ever watched that show, right? Surely we won't get kicked off the island because we have the law. But the law has limitations, The law has its limitations. The law was designed by God for specific purposes, and the average Jew missed this. God had never intended for the law to be something that the people relied on ultimately or that they boasted in ultimately. The law is designed to reveal the heart of God, to to show us what does God love and what does God hate. The law reveals the holiness, the justice of God, and the law reveals our sinfulness. And ultimately... The law points to Christ. That was the design of the law. The law was meant to point to Jesus Christ. So any reliance on the law without an understanding of of there being a Messiah to come misunderstood the purpose of the law. According to Galatians 3, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But the Jewish audience in Rome had a false confidence in the law, and they also had a false confidence in God. Did you see what it says in verse 17? They boast in God. You may say, well, what's wrong with that? Like, aren't we supposed to boast in God? The scriptures talk about boasting in the Lord. Yeah, well, if their boasting would have been boasting in the, in the offering of the Messiah, the sacrifice of the Messiah on their behalf, they would be A-OK. But the problem was that their boasting was in the fact that they were chosen by God, that they were the elect people. And so they're displaying that God trophy front and center, but not for God's glory. For the fact that they would be seen as superior. We are the people that God has chosen. And so it became about them instead about God's glory. How dare we allow our religious privilege to puff us up with pride and have feelings of superiority over those that do not know the word, that don't have the privileges that we have. I want to get real personal here, because as I've studied this sermon this week, I found tremendous conviction for myself. I see myself in this text. I always do. You know, God always brings things to light and, and, and brings it to bear on my heart, but especially this week. I know my proclivities. I know my tendencies, and I find myself in this text. I'm thankful for my spiritual heritage. I truly am. And if we were to sit down and I was to share, I could go into more detail. But my spiritual heritage is not a long one. It goes to my parents, and that's it. (laughs) No grandparents that were pastors, no long lineage of Christians in our family. And even my parents, when I was born, were not in a state of honoring God at all. But they decided when I was born, you know what, we're going to start going to church faithfully. We're going to have a family that, that knows the Bible and that goes to church. And I can tell you by God's grace, I can't remember a single Sunday that we ever didn't go to church, we just kind of did something else. Even on vacation, my parents made us go to church, okay? So this was a family that I grew up in that was always hearing the word, always with the people of God. Now, there were a lot of issues with the church I grew up in, and it wasn't the healthiest and all of that, but I learned about the word, and I was able to hear scripture my whole life. 
I have been. And I went to Christian school almost my entire upbringing and heard the word of God there. And I had the opportunity to go to Bible college and seminary and all of that. And so I don't take that religious privilege lightly. When I stand before God one day, my summer camp ribbon here isn't going to mean much. And I'm like, look, God, you're my summer camp ribbon. First place, uh, memorize 138 verses. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. So I'm thankful for all the privilege that I've had. If I'm honest, if I'm not careful, I can start to puff up my pride. Start to make me, why, why is that person so jacked up? You know, what's their issue? Well, why am I so jacked up? So I see myself in this text, and I know that when I stand before God, my religious trophies, my experience, my heritage, it's not going to mean anything. In fact, 1987, the, the year that I got this award, at camp, me and my friend, my good friend, decided we were going to tie. We weren't going to try to beat each other. We kind of got sick of trying to go back and forth that whole week. So we said, let's just tie. Do exactly the same amount of verses. And so the night before, they were scrambling, like, oh, we don't have two first-place ribbons, so they went and got another one. But my friend has this ribbon somewhere, or probably it's thrown out because I don't think most people keep these things. Anyway. But in the years since, he's walked away from Christ. He doesn't believe in the gospel. He went to Bible college. He took some seminary as well. He doesn't follow after God right now. And the day that he stands before God, he's not going to be able to pull out this ribbon and say, yeah, but God... I memorized that scripture. Yeah, but I went to Christian school, God. I even took a couple seminary classes. It's not going to count for anything. He's rejected Jesus Christ. He's rejected the provision that God has given. So I ask you, where does this passage prick your heart? Are there any religious or spiritual trophies that you might be polishing? Anything that you're boasting in except for the cross of Christ? Because that's what Paul said. Paul says, I will only boast in the cross of Christ, and that is it. And Paul had a resume. Maybe you are quite proud of your Christian roots, and you've passed this on to your children, and that is an awesome thing. That's a great thing. Maybe you've been baptized, and you've become a church member, and you tithe. And you've read every C.S. Lewis book, and you even named your kids Bible names. Maybe you can break down justification and propitiation and sanctification and glorification. And maybe you understand ecclesiology and eschatology and your exegesis is an, as an exact as an exacto knife. You know how to, to, to study the Bible and understand it. You have the light of the sun shining in your life. And all those poor Gentiles out there just stumbling around in the darkness with their iPhone flashlight trying to find their way. You think that you're better because you have more light, because you have more revelation. Let's read on, verses 21 through 24, and see what Paul says. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God is not impressed with our spiritual trophies and he is not fooled by our hypocrisy. Here's the, the bottom line. Having God's law 
and keeping God's law are two different things. You know, having the word of God and knowing it and doing it are two very different things. Knowing the Ten Commandments is one thing. Keeping them is another. Reading through the Bible in a year is one thing. Applying it is another. Now, some of us are opulently rich when it comes to our knowledge of the Scriptures. We know the Word, but we live like spiritual paupers. And one thing that really stood out to me as I studied this text here was all of the outward expression verbiage here. If you look at the scriptures here, the Jews are, are, are very forward, very vocal about, about their spirituality. Verse 17, and Paul says, you call yourself a Jew. It's an outward label that they have embraced, and they're not ashamed of that. There's boasting in verse 17. Verse 19, 20, and 21, they're guiding, instructing, teaching, and preaching. These are all very public, vocal things. Verse 22, you who say you must not commit adultery. They're they're saying it. They're telling other people you should not commit adultery. Verse 23, they're boasting again, boasting. There's a real disparity between the Jewish persona and the inner person here. There's a disconnect. And how does this happen in our life? How do we have such a disconnect between the the persona, what what we say, And who we really are, our integrity. Well, it's because we can deceive ourselves. And God's not fooled by our hypocrisy, but we can even deceive ourselves. It's the classic infirmity of self-righteousness. You know, you you ever meet that person, they're hypercritical, they're quick to point out all the flaws in everyone else. Uh, They lack grace completely. And yet, lo and behold, it becomes known that they have this deep, dark sin or secret that it dominates their life. I'll never forget my RA in Bible college, and he, man, he was not a fun guy, okay? <laughs> he, would, he would notice everything that we did that was wrong, you know? Oh, you didn't make your bed. I'm going to write you up for that. Oh, you're playing that music, which is not approved on the approved list. It was a Christian college with some interesting rules. Anyway, okay? And he was very, so critical, always nailing us for this and that and the other thing. And then by the end of the semester, it it became discovered that he was caught with some contraband that would kick him, get him kicked out of the school. And sometimes those with the highest soapbox are the guiltiest of all. For you and I, what is the disconnect between what we believe, believe and believe in our heart, and what we do? What's the disconnect? I want you to examine your own heart. Where, where do I have the right beliefs, but I don't live it the right way? Theologians talk about this with two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So, orthodoxy is believing the right things. Orthopraxy is doing the right things. I feel compelled to invent a a new word this morning, uh, which means saying the right things. Orthotalky. And it's not Greek and it's not Latin. It's just saying all the right stuff, right? Like this, this text, these Jews are speaking, hey, you shouldn't do this, but they're doing it. And, and they're saying orthodox things, but they are not walking with God. Perhaps you have great orthodoxy. And there's a lot of Christians at Bethel who have great orthodoxy, who know their doctrine. They've been taught well in the scriptures. Some of us, like the Jews Paul is writing to, we say all the right things. We have great orthotalky, and we know the lingo, and we know what to say. I am convicted to work on my orthopraxy. 
Hypocrisy is a nefarious thing. Right? Not only does it sideline true believers and render them ineffective, it is a poisonous, damning thing in the life of the lost in our world today. Did you see that from the scriptures here? Verse 24, it's a very sad verse. And I'll read it again for you. Verse 24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Think about this. It's always sad when the world is hurt by our hypocrisy. When the world is misled by the disconnect in us between what we believe and what we say and what we do. It's especially sad because do you know what Israel was called to in the first place? If we understand what God had called them to do as his people, this is very sad. And I want to read a text for you from Isaiah 42, verse 6 and 7. I am the Lord, God said. I have called you in righteousness. This is to his people, Israel. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. What does that sound like? It sounds like verse 19 and 20 of our text, if you look at it. I mean... This is the mission that Israel was called to. So they think of themselves as this light to the darkness and opening blind eyes. Well, they were called to be that. But hypocrisy hijacks the mission. And apparently there were enough Jews here who were, who were living in a hypocritical way and it had caused God's name to be blasphemed among those that were lost. It was always part of God's plan that Israel would not just be this little club, this special group of people privileged to have the law, but that they would instead take that light, that blazing light and revelation, and then share it with the dark world to minister to their neighbors, to to open blind eyes, to, to be a city set on a hill. And yet hypocrisy hijacks the mission. They had the precious riches of God's word. They should have shared it. They should have taught their neighbors. They should have brought people into the light. But here's the problem. Hypocrisy paints a false portrait of God to the world. When we live in a hypocritical way, we are painting a false portrait of who God is to the world. They see a representation of God that is not true, that is not right. Just this past week, GQ magazine published a controversial article. I don't know if you heard of it, but the title is 21 Books You Don't Have to Read. And it, it, it talked about all the classics that, you know, they say, oh, you should really read this book. And they said, nah, don't waste your time. They're not that good. Here's an alternative. Number 11 on the list was the Holy Bible. And this is the quote from the columnist. He said, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have never read it. Now, these are the words of a godless columnist who, whose eyes are blinded, who doesn't, doesn't know Christ, but I wonder, have any hypocritical Christians further galvanized his resistance? Because his tone when he writes is basically like this. The, the scripture has no relevance for life. Don't waste your time. Even those who champion it, they haven't read it and they don't really live it. God help us to avoid shipwrecking others by our hypocrisy. We may deceive ourselves, and we may even deceive other people. But one thing we know 
we will not deceive God. God is not fooled. His blazing eyes see right through the smoke and mirrors, and he looks right into our heart, which brings us to what God really is looking for. God praises a spirit-filled heart. He's not impressed with our spiritual trophies. He's not fooled by our hypocrisy. But he does praise a spirit-filled heart. Let's read the last few verses of the chapter. Verse 25 through 29, follow along, I'll read this. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in these last few verses of, of the chapter, Paul gives us kind of like a short story, two different characters, and the moral of the story is about circumcision. Circumcision was the physical sign for every Jewish male that they were part of the covenant community. You can look at Genesis 17 to find out a whole lot more about that. Children, ask your parents. It's hard for us to understand exactly how important this is for the Jewish people. It's hard for most of us to get that this was vital to their faith. And in the Midrash, and the Midrash is an ancient commentary on the Old Testament, a Jewish commentary. So it's not scripture, it's a commentary on scripture. And here's what it says. This is, this is interesting. Listen closely. It says, God swore to Abraham that no one who has, circum- who has been circumcised should be sent to hell. Does the Bible say that? The Bible doesn't say that, but that's, the, that's a Jewish understanding. This is so vital. The fact that you are a Jew, you're part of the covenant community, you should never be sent to hell. It gives a sense for how much the Jews banked on this practice, which makes Paul's words all that much more provocative in this little story. Here we have one man who is circumcised, presumably a Jew. One man who is uncircumcised, presumably a Gentile. But there's a plot twist, right? The the Jew does not keep the law by faith. He breaks the law. And so the text says his circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And then there's this Gentile over here. He's uncircumcised, but he keeps the law by faith. And the Bible says that his uncircumcision becomes circumcision. What was Paul saying in all this talk? Circumcision. What he's saying is that the Jew is circumcised on the outside, but he's uncircumcised on the inside. The Gentile, uncircumcised on the outside, but he is circumcised on the inside, in his heart, where it really matters. Apparently, circumcision is not an immunity idol. Apparently, our spiritual advantages become null and void when we break the law. So all of our spiritual heritage, our spiritual trophies, they vanish with failure to keep the law. Last week we heard a pretty convincing message that we cannot keep the law. (laughs) We, We can't keep the outward external requirements. We certainly can't keep the internal requirements. Nobody can perfectly keep the law. And so all of our spiritual advantages are gone 
when we fail to keep the law. So what are we to do? And that's what we've been asking in Romans, right? Okay, well, if I'm unable and I'm completely sinful and God demands righteousness, what do we do? Well, in the middle of all this talk of circumcision, we come to verse 28 and 29 there, and I find them to be like an oasis at the end of chapters 1 and 2. See, up to this point, we've kind of wandered through the desert wasteland called self-justification, right? And we have felt the sweltering heat of God's wrath, and our throat is parched because we have realized we are depraved, we are sinful, and we're growing weary because we say, well, I can't keep the law. I can't be right with God. And then, off in the distance, we see this spring, this refreshing spring. We have been thirsting for something outside of ourselves to make us right. A religion not based on what I do and my performance, but on God's performance, what God has done for me and in me. And we see Christ. We see this, see this idea of an internal change. God's the one doing it in me. I don't do anything. Notice in the last couple of verses here, it talks about the Spirit. And in your Bible, Spirit is capitalized. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. This is not an outward alteration. This is an inward renovation. It's not something we do. It's not something that we keep. It's, it's a process that's happening in us by God. And it's starting to sound like justification by faith, right? Faith in our heart. A heart that is different. A heart that is changed. A heart that has been cleansed is the idea here. Set apart. And this heart change is something that God promised Israel thousands of years ago. Way before Romans was penned. In the book of Deuteronomy, this is what God says to the Jewish people. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Outside religion is not enough. God wants our heart. God wants our heart. And what, what Paul is doing here, another thing that he's doing is he's helping us understand the law. He's giving us a clearer picture of what the law is and why he gave the law. Law keeping begins in the heart. And this is something that the Jewish person just missed. Most of them missed it because they toiled and they strove and they, they worked so hard to keep the law. And yet it was all for naught. Because again, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. They meticulous, meticulously dotted all their eyes. And they crossed all their T's, but they missed the most important thing of all. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. It's about the heart. And once the Holy Spirit comes in and he renovates our hearts and he, he changes us from the inside out, then and only then can I love God with my whole heart. Well, we'll never be perfect. We'll never be able to perfectly love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. But the only way to even love God is to have a heart change, to be changed from the inside out. And now, now I can, by faith, keep the law. Oh, not perfectly, that's for sure. But I have an inward heart that is different. There's a new covenant and a new heart. And so Paul is helping the Jewish people understand the law. They missed this. They missed it. Here's how the chapter ends and where I'd like to end this morning. Verse 29, look at it one more time with me. 
And I'll read it for you, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, notice this, but from God. God praises the person whose heart has been renovated. The person who has a heart that desires to please God. A heart that loves Jesus Christ. That's accepted the gospel. You know, ribbons and trophies, they may impress man. Like my second grade sack race trophy. Very impressive, I know. But we're not called to impress man. That's actually not who we have to worry about. Some of you here today have a lot of accomplishments. Maybe you have several degrees and it shows dedication, it shows competence. Some of you have impressive salaries and it reveals your importance. Some of us have a religious heritage that we're proud of, Christian roots. And you know a lot about this book. You might win some Bible trivia somewhere. But you don't have to impress us, so stop trying so hard. Forget about the Instagram filter. Focus on the approval of the only one who really matters. The God who created us. The God who is our judge and we will stand before one day. He's the one that we're called to live for. It's his approval that we long for. It's his approval that we need. I mean, that's what we're talking about in this book of Romans anyway. How can we be right with God? How can I stand before God one day and be okay and be declared righteous and forgiven Notice what this says. It says that God praises the one. He praises us. Now that sounds backwards to me, right? That, that God would praise me. I'm thinking I should praise God. In reality, he is bringing glory to himself because we didn't do a thing. Notice it's the spirit that does the work. Verse 29. By the spirit. This, this process that happens in our heart, we didn't do it. We didn't drum it up. This is the spirit that has done a work in us. And so God's really bringing glory to himself. But he gives us his approval. I'm highly encouraged that I can have the approval of God. That, that there is a way. Because as we go through Romans, it can be easy to start to feel like, oh my goodness, like all I, all I hear about is I'm a sinner. Well, yeah, but you can have the approval of God, the scripture says, if something happens in your heart. If you believe, if you have faith, we'll see in this book, in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. If you have that faith, then God approves of us. God loves us. God looks at us as his children. And he'll never, ever forsake us. My, my youngest daughter this week asked me a question. Hey, Dad, you know how the Bible says that God has us in his hand? And, and we, we can never be taken out. We can never be plucked out. Book of John. She asked about it. She goes, well, in the sermons, you guys have been saying that God sometimes lets us go. Or he leaves us to our own devices and he lets us go our own way she's like well how can both of those be true right I'm like that's you're listening <laughs> you're listening and I, I explained to her when you're a child of God when you have a new heart as Paul says God has you in his hand there is nothing that can remove you from God's hand no matter what happens in your life and whoever abandons you God never abandons you you're his son you're his daughter you're a child of the king and so that's confidence but in the passage, God is talking about those people, Romans 1, who have seen his glory in creation, who have seen his work, and they decide to say, no, no, I'm good, I have my own way, I'm, I'm okay. 
those are the people that, that God says he leaves to themselves, that he gives them over, the passage says. That's an important distinction to note. And if you're a believer this morning, you can have confidence that there is a way to please God. There is a way to have God's approval. It's in the heart, though. It's not going to come through my righteousness. It's going to come through a surrendered heart. A heart that says, God, take my heart, do whatever you want with it, renovate it. It's going to be painful. And just think about the process here that's being compared to inward circumcision. Okay, God, you have changed my heart. You've given me a new heart. And then, God, please keep revitalizing my heart. Keep reforming my heart because I need you to have me. That's what God approves of. And not this process of just trying to work it out myself. And I wonder if some of you in here are walking through that desert of self-justification. You, you've been trying, you've been trying to, to live up to whatever your standards are or whatever moral standards you think maybe God expects. Hopefully, if you're listening to the book of Romans, you're starting to feel desperate. You're starting to feel thirsty for something else. And that something else is Jesus Christ. Will you cry out to him today? Will, will you ask him to, to save you? And do something in you. It's not about your performance. It's about his performance in us. God won't be impressed with our spiritual trophies and he won't be fooled by our hypocrisy. He looks at our heart. 